you know, it's very difficult to start putting asterisks on things where someone uh, has rather extraordinary performance, even if it was enhanced, if they were acting within existing rules and using uh, the equipment which was permitted. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. Well, Bob, today's show is sponsored by Clio, web-based practice management software, and Landy Insurance. And I know you write some blogs as well. Uh, I write a couple of blogs. I write my own blogs, Law Sites and Media Law, and also Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. Well, Craig, uh, it seems like the news lately has been uh, full of stories about uh, scandals and perhaps the need for regulation within uh, professional sports. There's been uh, the most recent item perhaps has been this whole talk about uh, the controversial polyurethane swimsuit in the swimming world. Uh, Talk about steroids again in Major League Baseball, stories about uh, possibly the need for DNA testing in Major League Baseball. Uh, in the swimsuit controversy, Michael Phelps uh, lost his first major race since 2005 to Paul Biederman uh, when Biederman wore uh, a high-tech arena X-Glide swimsuit, uh, which the International Swimming Federation has said will become illegal in 2010. Well, Bob, aside from that, there have been steroids in the Major League Baseball, as you mentioned, and amid rumors of heavy hitters, Manny Ramirez and David Ortiz testing positive back in 2003. We'll say it ain't so, but on this edition of Lawyer to Lawyer, we will be taking a look at regulations in the sports world. We'll look at the the splash over Michael Phelps' loss to another swimmer with a faster suit. Uh, of course, Phelps quickly uh, regained his title after that, uh, and uh, uh, various other uh, issues related to that. Well, our first guest today is Professor Matt Mitten. He is the director of the National Sports Law Institute and the LLM in Sports Law Program for Foreign Lawyers at Marquette University Law School. He's a leading sports law scholar and member of the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne, Switzerland, in the American Arbitration Association's Commercial and the United States Anti-Doping Agency Arbitration Panels, as well as the LPGA's Drug Testing Arbitration Panel. He serves on the Sports Lawyers Association's Board of Directors and the Advisory and Editorial Board for the NCAA Scholarly Colloquium on College Sports. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Matt Mitten. Good afternoon. I'm pleased to join you today. And joining us next today is Attorney John P. Collins, a partner in the firm of Collins & Collins in Chicago. In 1997, John became general counsel to United States Soccer, the United States Soccer Federation, uh, responsible for all legal matters for U.S. soccer. Uh, in 2001, he joined a litigation law group at Jenkins and Gilcrest and chaired the sports entertainment and media team, representing clients in litigation matters. Uh, Mr. Collins uh, represents and advises not-for-profit clients, including sports organizations, and teaches sports law at the University of Chicago Law School. 
He's given lectures for the past four years at the Sports Lawyers Association Conference uh, and is on the Board of Advisors at the National Sports Law Institute at Marquette University. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Attorney John Collins. Hi, glad to be here. Well, let's kick off today's show by talking about this swimsuit controversy. And I guess we all knew that at some point in time there were rules in sports, but rules at this level? I don't find them very surprising. Um, This is John Collins. Um, I just look at it as an equipment rule. Um, You know, there's it was a decade or so, maybe longer than that. Now there was a huge controversy in golf about square grooved clubs and the amount of backspin they were giving. You know, this is a piece of equipment that gives buoyancy to swimmers. Yeah, I would agree with John. It's it's very similar to to regulation of golfing equipment or uh, tennis rackets or even you know what can be used for auto racing, what types of engines, tires, that sort of thing. Right, or, or say like uh, Major League Baseball bans aluminum bats, but they can use them in college. Is this a circumstance where technology has uh, overtaken the rules? I don't know that I would use the word overtaken. I think that uh, might have caught him a little bit by surprise as to how effective it was. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's, you know, there's always, you know, technology is constantly changing, and it's fair to say rules are going to have to be modified in response to that also. I think one of the interesting things about the swimsuit controversy is it's so easy to fix in that you could just change or say you can't have that sort of suit. Um, But one of the things about it that, that is intriguing is, you know, when they had issues with golf and the drivers and what they will and won't let them use for a driver or a golf ball or in, you know, professional baseball where they say you can't use an aluminum bat, they, they'll say partly it's the pitcher, is at risk, and some other things. But really, if they allow it, that would have the problem of making physical infrastructure too easy. You know, the golf course would become relatively easy. You know, everybody would reach a par five and two. Or in baseball, you know, the home runs would go out too fast and you maybe have to build a bigger stadium. Where this, uh, you know, the, the pool is the pool length, and you would just have a faster time. So it's kind of intriguing that they want to make the change simply because times are dropping. Well, if, if it's so easy to fix, I mean, what's what's the process that goes into this? How do these rules uh, become established within professional sports? I mean, let's take swimming as an example. Is there a body that somebody would make a complaint to? Is there a, a essentially a legislative process that they go through? How, do, how does that work? John, I'll ask you that. Um, well, there's a world governing body for the sport of, of uh, swimming. is FINA. And uh, they actually have, I think, four or five water sports that come underneath FINA, which makes it somewhat of a uh, unique international federation. But they all have rulemaking bodies within them. And then they have uh, the rules of competition and they set them. Uh, for example, in soccer, there's a body. Uh, it, it's a little different in that it has a separate body called the International Football, the IFAB, which is different than FIFA, but FIFA is a member of it. And then it sets the rules of play for all of soccer throughout the world. So FINA would do the same role in swimming. But who are these people? I mean, how do they get, uh, how do these people get into this position? Who are they? And, and, and is there a process? I mean, are, are they acting in some sort of a, a democratic process? Uh, are, are people bringing petitions to them to ask that these rule changes get made? Uh, how does it work from a practical point of view? Well, there's, you've got the International Olympic Committee that oversees you know, Olympic competition. And as John mentioned, there's an international federation for, for each sport, to use FINA as an example. Its members would be the national governing bodies for swimming and other water sports within a particular um, country. 
And if we look at the, the rule that was just modified where FINA decided to ban the use of, I guess it's all non-textile materials from swimsuits starting next year and then limited the coverage of the body, um, it was, you know, the U.S., uh, USA Swimming initiated, you know, made this proposal and then there was a vote by the uh, the NGBs and I, I think it was something like 168 uh, NGBs voted in favor of it, and there were just only six in opposition. So it was pretty overwhelming. What's the aspect here of how this uh, how Paul Biederman's rule is going to stand, given the, um, the potential that it's going to be his suit's going to be outlawed next year? Is this the kind of thing where we're going to see an asterisk next to his record? Well, I don't really think they can do that because at the time he was uh, competing. You know, he was using a sim- swimsuit which was allowable. And, you know, it's very difficult to start putting asterisks on things where someone uh, has rather extraordinary performance, even if it was enhanced, if they were acting within existing rules and using uh, the equipment which was permitted. Yeah, I'd be surprised if there's an asterisk put next to it. You know, in track and field, for example, they have, um, they just don't allow the times if there's wind or some other factor. But this was something that was permitted at the time. It would be similar to trying to go back with respect to home runs and saying that people in those home runs shouldn't count now that uh, bouncing over the wall is a ground rule double instead of a home run. Yeah, or because they, you know, the, the fences were longer, they moved them in. Well, and that brings us to the steroids question to some extent, because what about the uh, asterisk next to the names of some players who, you know, are later found to have uh, been using steroids? Should, should that somehow be reflected in, in the record? Well, I think that's a different issue because there you have someone who was, you know, proven or shown to not be, you know, they achieved their performance outside of the permissible rules of the competition. And that's a very difficult question. That's something that's really up to the uh, the governing body to decide, which would be uh, Major League Baseball. So, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, there's an enormous amount of government or, or enormous amount of deference that the legal system provides to the in, internal governance of sport, and this would be an issue where it's it's up to the decision makers weighing a wide variety of factors as to what to do. So the high tech swimsuit was legal at the time it was used, but the steroids were not legal at the time they were used, and so that's the difference. Yes, I'd see that as a as a very key distinction between the two. I think there's also some distinction in that it is uh, a piece of legal equipment. You know, something that, that they... The, that the swimsuit is a piece of legal equipment. Right. right. Yeah, I think the fact that it was equipment rather than something inside the athlete that was deemed illegal. You know, I don't think anybody's claiming that the swimmers cheated. Right. Whereas with respect to steroids, they're claiming they cheated. Well, how do you pick whether somebody's cheating using something that no one else has? Uh, or at least an, the number of people? Is it simply just a matter of... Uh, great that this person got an advantage because of a swimsuit that nobody else had? Or is it that you know, this guy took steroids and he shouldn't have been taking steroids? We make the distinction that way. I, I would dispute the no one else had it concept. Uh, I've happened to have represented uh, a number of swimmers uh, just here in my town in different things. And uh, you know, I was getting a cup of coffee the other morning and uh, ran into the woman who works in the shop. Her son is a swimmer and she was saying how at the Junior Olympics, the kids in the U-12s were beating records that hadn't been, you know, they were swimming times that were so much faster because they had the same suits. So it's not like it's not an available suit. And she was saying how her son had to keep up, and he had, you know, a two-year-old suit, and it was a different thing, and, and so his times weren't, as, weren't there. Um, and he is a distance swimmer, and in a distance swimmer, the suit makes a bigger difference because uh, it's a buoyancy thing and how hard you're working. 
So they, they seem pretty readily available if they're being used at the under-12 age group in Junior Olympics. And John raises a, a really interesting point. It's Even if something is available, it's the cost factor. I mean, surely Olympic caliber and elite athletes, uh, they're probably going to be provided this equipment um, free of charge. But at the youth level, um, not everyone can afford a you know suit that costs a couple hundred dollars or something that's going to only last for a couple um, competitions. So then it can, you know, even though it's available and permitted, uh, it, you know, it, it, at some point, if, if the cost of the equipment suit or whatever gets to be so high, then it's going to, you know, really reduce the uh, scope of the field of competition, those who are able to compete on a level playing field, so to speak. What does that do to the sport? The people that run the governing bodies that oversee the sports, the international federations and some of the, uh, the national governing bodies, they have a concern that they don't want their sport to be priced out of being an affordable sport. Um, swimming's a little unique in that it's already a very expensive sport because you have to get pool time. Um, you know, I, for example, basketball and soccer and some other sports have fought uh, issues with respect to adding new equipment that has to be added because they don't want to raise the cost of the sport. You know, FIFA will be concerned about things that happen and because it's played in 208 countries around the world, they don't suddenly want you to have to a bunch of other things. You know, in some places, just getting a ball or shoes is expensive enough. If you have to start having all sorts of other equipment, it puts a hindrance on it. So the governing bodies will be concerned. Is, is it raising the barrier of entry to the sport? Yeah, there's, a, there, there's an inherent self-interest that the governing bodies have, um, you know, to regulate the sport in such a way that there's going to be, you know, viable competition and people with the talent and ability are, are going to be able to, to participate in it. Are, are there issues of individual player rights that, that ever come up with these issues? I mean, you know, I guess if we're talking about a, a piece of equipment that's, that's regulation across the board, then that's not an issue. But, um, you know, I'm thinking about this, this, Discussion recently about the possibility of DNA testing, for example, for major league players, and I and I know that uh, you know that, that's not an issue either of you have, have looked into extensively. But I, I guess that raises for me questions about what rights individual players have and how they go about enforcing those rights uh, in in issues of of personal privacy, uh, what kinds of rights they have under their contracts. I mean, do these things? come up at all in this in this broader area of sports uh, regulation there's uh i'd have to break your question into sort of two parts yeah that's um, fine because one being the issue of doping and that stuff put that one aside for a second um the place where i've had them come up considerably is um what is competition equipment and what is a uniform and that comes up in the context of collective bargaining and I, I tend to represent the organization more than I represent the athlete. I've represented some athletes, but usually it's like in a doping matter or something, uh, or an individual sport. But if there's a team sport or other things, I tend to represent the organization. But in the collective bargaining agreement, for example, the uniform is owned by the team or the club, and the athlete has certain rights to what's deemed competition equipment. So in soccer, uh, the shoes are deemed a competition equipment and goalie gloves are but everything else is considered the uniform. And so then it becomes a right to who has the right to sponsorship on it. So the player has the right to the boots, but the, the, the strip, the uniform is the club. And so they get the right to do the apparel sponsors and stuff like that. Uh, that happened throughout the Olympic movement. I've done stuff in about 14 different Olympic sports now. And that's sort of where they break down. But what is competition equipment in different places? Uh, 
is a different thing. You know, in swimming, there's really, there is no uniform in swimming. Um, all you have is your competition equipment. Uh, so they don't have that debate as much and they don't have the rights there. But the, there they would have, for example, at the Olympic level, the uniform that you wear when you receive your medal. That's what would be owned by the organization and not the athlete. So that context, it comes up all the time. The doping, um, typically the players and everybody agree. The only place where there's been sort of a fabulous disconnect or famous disconnect over would be in Major League Baseball where both the owners and the uh, players didn't see a need to, to address it in collective bargaining. And it's a, it was a place where they didn't have anything to fight over, and so they didn't bargain over it. And so they, they ended up with the loophole that they did. Yeah, the way that it's essentially a contractual relationship uh, to compete in a, in a competition. Let's say that you're a a swimmer, you're a member of the U.S. US swimming national governing body, and you agree to comply with their rules, they essentially, which would include rules of competition, things like uh, doping, what equipment you can use, not use. You've agreed to it. Uh, pretty difficult for an athlete there um, to assert any kind of legal claims unless, as John pointed out, they're violating the athlete's rights to whether it's defined as a uniform or equipment or whatever. And then the, the genetic testing, um, DNA testing, that's a little bit different there because then athletes do have certain rights under state or federal privacy laws as well as laws that prohibit discrimination based on various things like uh, gender, uh, physical disabilities. So it's it's important to really segment out what exactly um, the claim would be. Right. Although I think that all of those claims that you've just, uh, the discrimination things, they could still waive them through uh, joining the organization and agreeing to participate. So on the, on the equipment, we're talking about sponsorship opportunities. Is that, is that largely what you're, what you're referring to there in terms of ownership? I mean, who gets the right to sell yeah. space on, on the jersey or, or uh, uh, shorts or wherever? What about ownership? I mean, what about uh, the the question of uh, you know the outfielder who who catches the uh, the the winning out in the World Series? Uh, and wasn't this a case a year or two ago? Where, I forget who it was who didn't want to give the ball back. I think after he after he caught it uh, or claimed rights to it. Um, are are those uh, decided through some some formal process, or does that become a matter of litigation in the courts? The game ball is owned by the organization that's putting on the game. Sounds fairly straightforward and easy to understand. It sounds, but what? But what? Am I wrong? Wasn't there some litigation about this? Uh, I'm thinking of the the year Boston won, although I'm not sure that. I, I don't uh, think it was a, a player. I think there was a fan, maybe or something. Is it? Was it a fan? Okay, that may be. There's been disputes among fans when a ball is hit into the stands. Who actually had possession of it and owns it? That that that, that is a little bit different issue. Is whether the ball leaves the field right. of play? Who owns it? As opposed to, uh, you know, the final out of uh, Game Seven of the World Series. Yeah. Right. The the other point you raised there, though, the question about whether it goes to litigation or not. Um, one thing that is sort of interesting in the sports and, it, and it's moving more and more that way is the um, regulation that everything go into uh, or stay out of the courts um, and that things go and be resolved through arbitration within the sports. And there's something you know, Matt's a member of the Court of Arbitration of Sport. Uh, take uh, FIFA for example. Um, they have changed the FIFA statutes to say that uh, you're not allowed to take any disputes within football or soccer here in the U.S. Uh, to the ordinary courts. And then they've even gone as far as to require all 208 National Association members of FIFA to put in their bylaws and to make their members agree 
that all disputes go through internal dispute resolution mechanisms. And then if they are unhappy with those, they can uh, have an appeal process if it's either to the Confederation or to FIFA. And ultimately, all of FIFA's decisions are appealable to CAF. So they, there's a, a significant effort to keep things out of the courts. Yeah, of course, you know, we've, we've just seen that in another context, in the consumer arbitration context, where, where uh, it's, it's been highly controversial as, as uh, perhaps an imbalance of, of bargaining power uh, in being forced to enter into these kinds of agreements. I mean, is that a concern at all within professional sports? Have there been challenges to the arbitration process on that kind of a basis? I think we have to pretty carefully segment out um, professional sports from, let's say, Olympic sports. On the professional sports context, uh, at the major league level, uh, most of the players have unionized. So the dispute resolution process, and they usually uh, do choose arbitration, that, that's collectively bargained. Right. And I, I think the players' union has as much leverage as the, uh, as, as the clubs. Right. So they That's would agree point. on it and say, okay, who's the pool of arbitrators? What's the processes and all of that? Now, if you compare that to the Olympic side, as John described, uh, it's pretty much a take-it-or-leave-it process from the athlete's perspective. The athletes are not represented by unions, and it's like if you want to participate, you have to agree uh, to particular terms, one of which is going to arbitration. But I think in a lot of ways, uh, athletes are better off with the arbitration process. Courts provide very, very deferential scope of um, review of a private association's um, decisions and rules, and that would include the, you know, the United States Olympic Committee, the national governing bodies for the various sports, and real questions as to whether a U.S. court would have jurisdiction over the, uh, the IOC or an international federation. And what arbitrators can do is they exercise de novo review of the governing body's decision, which is a much broader nature and scope of review than a court would typically provide, which is quite deferential, just only if it's arbitrary and capricious. So even though athletes don't really have um, a say in whether it goes to arbitration, I think that they're um, better off in terms of the scope of review that they're going to get by an arbitration panel rather than a court. And Matt, I, I agree much with what Matt said, but I think he's got the, a little bit of it inaccurate. Um, a number of different sports that happen to be on the Olympic menu, uh, their Olympic teams have actually unions. I did collective bargaining with uh, at least two of them. Um, so there's unions there. Um, the other thing is within the sports, certainly the team sports all have unions throughout them. Uh, and, and they have it in other parts of the world, not just here in the United States. Also, the Sports Act requires... And uh, through the USOC, which is then done in the USOC bylaws, uh, requires a number of certain things to go just to arbitration and not to the courts. For example, athlete disputes as to whether or not somebody made the Olympic team has to go to arbitration. And that's in the Ted Stevens Olympic Amateur Sports Act. All right, we have to take a short break right now. Uh, stay with us. We'll be right back uh, for more of our conversation with uh, Matt Mitten and John Collins. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. 
right from the beginning. You know, I knew I was important. Can you say that about the insurance agency helping to protect your legal practice? Lawyers like Rebecca Brody are confident working with the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, knowing they have the best professional liability insurance coverage for the best possible price. It is about customer service. I think that's what we like to promote in our business. You know, we did have some kind of specialty questions. We did have some concerns. It was really great, and it really felt like if I'm that well taken care of, it made it possible for me to go and take care of, you know, take care of my business and take care of my clients. Give us a call at 800-336-5422 or visit our website at landy.com. That's L-A-N-D-Y dot com. 60 years of experience. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back Professor Matt Mitten, the director of the National Sports Law Institute and the LLM in Sports Law Program for Foreign Lawyers at Marquette University Law School, and attorney John P. Collins from the firm Collins & Collins. We were talking before the break, gentlemen, about uh, contracts and collective bargaining and so forth. And one of the more unusual things that you see in sports contracts that you don't see in many other contracts are morals clauses. Can you describe for our listeners what those are and how they have effects? Well, it's basically a conduct provision whereby the – and oftentimes they're written rather broadly, which will say – Athlete agrees not to engage in certain specific acts or any other uh, acts of moral turpitude, for example. And these are things that can subject the player to discipline by the league and or club. Uh, Michael Vick being an example. I don't, you know, he's completed his sentence and served his time, uh, paid his debt to society, but he's only been conditionally reinstated. And that would be an example of where we've got some off-field conduct, and there's certain consequences for violating that provision. It's pretty much up to the discretion of uh, Commissioner Roger Goodell as to when he's going to be reinstated. The, the other way it would come into play is if the athlete enters into an endorsement contract with a company like, say, Nike or Nestle's or you know, any commercial sponsor product. They, of course, don't want to have uh, their product associated with an athlete and, and bad conduct. So these are something that are becoming much more widespread, and there's really some serious consequences if, if athletes violate them. Yeah, I, I don't know that they're um, that unique to sport. Uh, pretty much anybody negotiating a high-level corporate agreement that's got a large dollar amount, if the, if the person has an actual employment contract, um, you know, CEOs regularly have them in their contract. And other things, anybody who can be the face of a corporation, they put that in there. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that the way it might be a little bit more unique about athletics is that um, and it, 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 they've actually been brought in in the case of the collective bargaining agreement, where players will agree to it uh, union-wide to have certain things and to give discretion to the uh, commissioner to, to act on it. Uh, and there it's a recognition of the high-profile nature of the athletes. Uh, the other thing is, is it's not just the athletes. The coaches um, almost all have them as well. And certainly at the college level, all the coaches have them. As a, as a footnote uh, to history here, I'm, I'm, I've realized that the person I was asking about was uh, with the Red Sox uh, in 2004 and uh, caught the uh, uh, made, made the out that ended the curse of the Bambino uh, and uh, hung on to the ball. Uh, he later, I guess, reached some kind of a settlement with... Uh, Major League Baseball about the fate of that ball, but uh, that's what I was trying to think of before. The player actually made a claim for the ball? 
uh, yeah, he hung on to it apparently, <laughs> uh, and wouldn't give it back. Um, and, uh, uh, then he, uh, he, uh, said he was going to let, this was in 2004. He said he would let them, uh, let the bomb, <laughs> Wikipedia is my source here. Uh, but, uh, it may have happened, but I would be yeah. surprised that a player would make such a claim. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to see is, you know, is it major league baseball that owns the ball? Is it the, the visiting team? Is it the home team? That's, um, I believe it's major league baseball. And then, and the way you would know that pretty definitively is I'm pretty sure they have a major league ball sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they, this, the settlement was that the ball went to the hall the baseball hall of fame. So that was the, uh, outcome of it. But you know, who has the right to sell the ball sponsorship would be the one who owns the property. Yeah. What are, uh, from where you guys sit, what are, you know, we, we've talked about some of the issues that, that have struck us. Are, are, are there others that, that stand out to you right now as, uh, as important issues uh, that, that at least the legal profession, if not the public, should be paying attention to in terms of, uh, uh, you know, regulation uh, and the intersection of the law and sports? Well, there's a very important case where the United States Supreme Court uh, recently agreed to hear and it involves um, a rather complicated issue under federal antitrust law of whether a professional sports league should be treated as a single integrated entity that's not subject to Section 1 of the Sherman Act, which prohibits any kind of agreements or combinations that unreasonably restrain trade, um, or should it be each of the clubs essentially be treated as the underlying economic actors, that really the league only can act through the um, representatives of the clubs, and that's currently pending. Uh, will be argued this fall, and probably dis- we'll have a decision by next year. But but that has some pretty important implications as to because um, there's so many agreements and rules that professional sports leagues have. You know, who owns a franchise? Um, when can it? Um, who you know who who can buy it? You know, who's going to be permitted to sell it? When can it be relocated? Uh, leagues typically require permission. And if the leagues win this case, then they're going to have a great deal uh, more flexibility. You're not going to have to be concerned with at least Section 1 of the Sherman Act. What's, what's particularly interesting about this one is it's now at the Supreme Court. Um, about 15 years ago, when Major League Soccer was formed, Alan Rothenberg, who is a longtime sports lawyer out of L.A., uh, formed the league. And, and on basis of uh, the Copperwell decision, single entity, uh, formed Major League Soccer as a single entity, where it... Uh, it was more like a co-op building instead of a condo building. You bought shares in the league, and then you were given the right to operate a team. And uh, the reason they did that initially was so that all players contracted with Major League Soccer and then were assigned to the team. And so there was a way to not have any collective bar or to have any uh, free agency or bidding on players, and it was an attempt to hold down costs to, so it would avoid the fate of the old NASL, which bid itself out of existence. And that case was extensively litigated. I was involved in it, um, and ultimately, it went up through the. Uh, it was we tried it in Boston, and then the uh, appellate court affirmed that it was a single entity. But there was some language that talked about the unique nature of how Major League Soccer started as a single entity, and uh, you know, it was done under the rule of reason. But what was interesting in that case is that the players that sued or brought the antitrust case were funded by the NFL Players Association, who spent millions and millions of dollars because the players there did not want um, the... Uh, they, they felt it was in their interest to try and prevent the single entity theory from advancing. And so now you have the case going to the Supreme Court, and there's been a number of places where 
the other thing about it is that sometimes they're deemed to be single entities and sometimes they're not, some of the existing ones. They have been for certain marketing and television rights purchases, but they have not for player negotiations and stuff. So what the decision comes out of the Supreme Court will be interesting to see. Well, Matt and John, we've just about reached the end of our program, so it's time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information. And uh, Matt, can we start with you? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that, you know, sports law and uh, this is a very, very dynamic field. And, you know, the separate section of the paper, you know, all kinds of websites dedicated to it. And the the legal issues are just um, fascinating. And I've always thought that uh, sports and sports law is a microcosm of society. And some of the issues we discussed today certainly, I think, uh, evidence that. Good. And your contact information? Uh, I can be reached at Matt, M-A-T-T dot Mitten, M-I-T-T-E-N, at Marquette dot E-D-U. Great. And John, how about you? Uh, I think it's uh, it's been a fascinating field to be practicing in for about the past 12, 15 years. And uh, what I find interesting is how when I first got there, people thought uh, it was just sort of this weird thing and, oh, sports law, what is it? And I've been teaching sports law for the past 10 years now at University of Chicago and there's a far greater acceptance today and recognition that there is some the law treats sports uniquely, uh, as Matt pointed out. Um, it, if you look at the sports page, I've been ruining my students' ability to read the sports page for more than a decade now uh, because I tell them to read the paper and, and send me and call me when they have uh, stories about sports law while they're, while they're in my class. And In fact, just yesterday I got somebody who had, had my class five years ago say, I saw this article, tell you'd find it interesting. So sports law is, is growing it's an $800 billion industry, so it's not surprising. And uh, it's very fun and interesting to work in. One thing that uh, is really interesting and cutting edge we didn't get to talk about is all the changing broadcast rights and all the new different types of broadcasts and, and what it means. I do a lot of television agreements, and you know the television industry is changing, and sports is intricately related to it. Uh, anybody who wanted to, who's listened and wanted to contact me, my contact information would be john, J-O-H-N, dot Collins at collinsandcollins.com, and the and is spelled out A-N-D. Great. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. And to our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Yeah, and let me just add my thanks to our guests for taking the time to be with us today and uh, remind our listeners that we are also in the podcast library of iTunes. And, uh, Craig, we will be back next week with another great topic. We'll see you then, Bob. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.